Good afternoon and welcome to our Resilient Communities report launch. My name's Ed Newell and I'm the Chief Executive of Cumberland Lodge. If you've been involved in the project already, welcome back and thank you for joining us again to help launch the final report. And if you aren't familiar with our work and this is your first time joining us, we're delighted to have you with us. Cumberland Lodge is an educational charity. We were founded in 1947 in the aftermath of the Second World War and we're based in Windsor Great Park. We convene multi-sector interdisciplinary conferences, seminars and panel debates to engage people of all ages, backgrounds and perspectives in conversations on societal and ethical issues. The report on resilient communities marks the culmination of many months of research and dialogue that's drawn on the wisdom and experience of many people, academics, policymakers, business leaders, NGOs, frontline community practitioners, activists, and young people from across the UK. The report summarizes key themes and best practice recommendations that emerged from our independent research and a roundtable conference at Cumberland Lodge in February uh, earlier this year, which was organized in partnership with the Young Foundation. The ideas that came out of that uh, event were reviewed and refined at an expert consultation that we convened virtually this time in May 2020 with conference representatives and uh, others joining us. Today, we're launching this report by exploring its cross-sector findings and recommendations with our guest panelists. And we have with us Helen Goulden, the Chief Executive of the Young Foundation, Ali Amla, Trustee of Solutions Not Sides, Neil McInroy, Chief Executive of the Centre for Local Economic Strategies, and also Dr. Sinead Fitzsimons, um, who is the author of the report and is the Education and Development Research Officer at Cambridge Assessment. Thank you very much indeed for being with us. We'll begin by hearing some reflections from our panellists on the report. Then we'll have a Q&A session. And do please get involved and submit any questions you'd like to put to our panellists. And you can do this uh, via the Q&A function if you're watching live on Zoom or by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge or commenting on our Facebook live stream. And at the end of this uh, event, the report will be available to download via our website. So I do hope that you'll be wanting to, to read it. So to begin with, I'm going to hand over straight away to the author of the report, Sinead. Over to you and uh, let's hear your reflections on, what, on the work that you've been doing for us. Thanks, Ed. First of all, I want to begin by saying what a privilege it's been to have been involved in the Resilient Communities Project. Thank you to everyone on the project team at Cumberland Lodge, especially Emily, Jan and Helen. And echoing Ed's remarks, I would also like to thank the many, many people who contributed to this report by sharing their work, their ideas and their experiences. I tried to capture the voices of these individuals and groups through the pages of this report, but unfortunately I could not include a case study of every inspiring initiative. I encourage readers to take the time to learn about and to support the work that's been done by all the contributors. And you can see a list of all of their projects on pages 86 to 89. UK communities are being faced with unprecedented amounts of change and uncertainty. This is the first line of part one of this report. And in many ways, this observation represents the motivation behind this project. Little did we know that the changes and uncertainties facing UK communities would become even more unprecedented throughout the completion of this report. The COVID-19 pandemic 
increasing inequality and systemic racism, climate change, Brexit, unemployment, housing shortages, economic uncertainty, and the migration crisis are all examples of social realities that are testing the resilience of individuals and their communities. For those who have not read earlier publications related to the Resilient Communities Project, I want to quickly define what the term resilience means in the context of this report. Resilience is not defined as a trait that must be developed by communities or individuals alone, but rather a process that involves collaboration and shared ownership. Resilience building is positioned as a combined effort of the public, private, and social sectors working alongside communities to further develop and empower their strength, cohesion, and future success. Briefly, part one of this report addresses six avenues for strengthening community resilience, specifically active citizenship, partnerships with faith-based communities, arts and culture initiatives, sports and leisure activities, the role of businesses, corporations, and the local economy, and finally, the role of education and educational institutions. What emerges from part one is that these areas are interrelated and are most effective when collaboration exists across and between these different sources of community strength and resilience. For example, the report speaks about the work of St. Ethelberga's Centre for Reconciliation and Peace, which is a London-based Christian charity that promotes social cohesion, understanding, and peace through a wide program of events, including performative arts, leadership training, cooking classes, and yoga. Part one of this report also highlights that funding alone will not lead to a long-lasting community development. Increasing funding will make a difference, but more importantly, that funding needs to be used effectively. Both the private and public sector must work together to ensure that community-focused and community-driven approaches are at the core of any development initiative. During the Resilient Communities Conference and during the consultation process, there was a clear acknowledgement that even though there are many, many examples of communities showing great strength and resilience, the wider system to support communities in the UK is not functioning effectively for everyone. Structural change and social regeneration is needed. Power must be returned to the communities. A new social contract is needed that promotes greater equality, increased opportunities, and wider collective action to create a more secure and sustainable future that includes all members of communities. Part two of the Resilient Communities Report presents 24 recommendations that are structured around five key focus areas for transforming the UK's approach to community development. The first focus area argues that stronger community leadership and decision-making must be fostered. A recommendation connected to this theme calls for the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government to publish a clear mapping of the current decision-making processes related to local infrastructure. Once mapped, this should be reviewed and revised by a joint task force and revision should be made to empower local communities in the shaping of their own localities. Another recommendation calls for support for small-scale community-based charities and social purpose organizations in order to survive and transition during the period of financial hardship caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. Funding should prioritize areas in which poverty and inequality are entrenched. The second focus area argues that there must be an increased effort to widen the circle of those working, supporting, and contributing to community development. A related recommendation calls for all levels of government to conduct a critical evaluation of systemic racism from the local to the national level, followed by actions to listen to, learn from, 
and further empower Black, Asian, and minority ethnic members of society at all levels of government and community structures. The third area identifies the need to develop and increase community spaces and local ownership. Related recommendations call for local authorities to be stripped of the ability to sell or repurpose community assets without a thorough participatory decision-making process with the local community. It is also recommended that central and local government authorities introduce a right to operate model, which demands that all businesses promote environmental sustainability and community support initiatives in their business plans. The fourth thematic area stresses that monitoring and evaluation of community initiatives must focus on meaningful impact and that participatory processes must be implemented. The fifth and final thematic area identified by part two of the report stresses that community work should, be, should build on a shared wisdom in order to create a better future. To support and strengthen communities effectively, it is pivotal that communities collaborate and share their wisdom regarding what makes initiatives successful and what makes them more likely to fail. Whilst every context is unique, lessons can be learned from across communities. The Resilient Communities Project embodies this area by bringing together community leaders and stakeholders to share, listen, critically reflect, and identify what challenges exist and what models are working. I look forward to hearing from the other panelists today and the discussion which will follow so we can continue developing our understanding of challenges and opportunities to effectively support UK communities. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much indeed, not only for uh, introducing the report, but more importantly for producing it in the first place. So <laughs> it was a huge amount of work and you had to pull so many ideas and conversations together, which you've done brilliantly and succinctly. So thank you so much uh, for that. Um, let's move on to, to Helen. It has been a great pleasure to work with the Young Foundation on the project and it'd be great to hear uh, your reflections. Great, thank you, Ed. Um, yeah, so firstly, I think it is great to see this report launched and actually great to know that the input and partnership with the Young Foundation has been a positive one. Um, I wanted to make three sort of broad points, which I hope meet the brief. There's so much in the report to actually draw from. I recognize that my kind of three observations might and aren't uh, exhaustive. But firstly, I want to take a quick look at a few of the recommendations and how different motivations may impact the effectiveness of their implementation. The second point I want to make is really about how we characterize community and how the different ways in which we think about community impacts and limits the extent to which we can expect change to really happen. And I wanna make a final point about leadership, specifically the kind of leadership I think we need to support right now. So the first point um, about what we do with the recommendations of the report, authoring a report is a, is a big labour and actually the really hard work starts when you look at the recommendations, the work starts when you look at practical action uh, that flows from any kind of intellectual output. And I wanted to start telling off by telling a very quick story um, about a very different sector and circumstance. So I hope you bear with me. So a few years ago, um, I was asked to be a judge, a judge of an internal innovation competition of a very large um, FMCG company. And every year this um, organization incentivized their staff to come up with new products. And this was a judging day and myself and a few others were invited in to kind of judge which ideas we thought merited going into production. Uh, not that we were remotely qualified for that job, I should say. Um, it was really an intervention designed to motivate the staff to innovate. Anyway, 
It was a very fun idea. And one of the uh, ideas that came up was a vitamin enriched tea bag presented by very two very enthusiastic product designers. Now, to leave the idea aside, I just wanted to rest on something that stayed with me for many years, which is what the principal motivation that underpinned those product designers, because their core question was not, how can we make the most healthy product or tea bag for our customers? Their explicit intention was, what is the minimum that we have to do to get this product officially recognized as having health benefits? What threshold do we have to meet? Um, and I mention it because that kind of motivation can sometimes underpin uh, some of the rhetoric around community involvement, co-production and community engagement. What is the minimum that we can do to tick the box to say that we involve the community in our decision making, for example? Now, that might sound really cynical, but whether conscious or unconscious, our collective response to targets being set or thresholds thresholds being set is that we often seek to meet them and we don't even aspire to smash through them unless we've really internalized the benefits of doing so. And so I love this report. It's got some great recommendations. So if I pick out one, it says recommendation number 14, the government should commit to introducing a minimum threshold of voluntary and community social enterprises on each high street. And that's such a great recommendation. Sadly, we have more and more empty units on our high streets and there are ways of opening them up to community business, community activity and enterprise. It's really wonderful. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that recommendation. Repair shops, lending libraries, game studios, after school clubs, retraining schools for adults, community owned shops selling local produce, maker spaces, local community design and manufacturing. The opportunities for social innovation to revitalize our civic spaces are tremendous. And it requires social imagination, something that is recognised right up front in the report. We need more support for ideas that show us that the target isn't the point. A better, more equitable and happy society is the point. So when it comes to the fantastic recommendations about, say, the minimum number of community-owned presences on High Street or anti-racism inspections or mandatory stakeholder engagement in local decision-making in this report, let's just take an unflinching gaze at how those mandated targets and activities will be internalised by the people responsible for implementing them and ask ourselves, what are the supporting activities that we can do to say why this is a great idea first and how we will measure it second? So where you see communities coming together, you see real resilience and a creation, actually, I think, of new power. And at a time of recession and uncertainty, inequality, fatigue, poor mental and physical health, how do we all internalise that need the change, which brings me to a second point really about how we think about community and how that influences our policy and practice. And there's a great summary of the history of how successive governments have characterised community in the report. But how people in power think about the role of community is more relevant now that we've seen so much community organising as a result of the pandemic. So we've got thousands of new groups, new ways of organising digitally, new groups and modes of engagement with local authorities. We've seen a very particular, wholly unsurprising and brilliant outpouring of community activity to support people who have been made vulnerable as a result of the pandemic or who now are increased risk for various different reasons is because of lockdown and the pandemic. And it's a model of community action 
that is about mutual aid and it's about helping others. And certainly in some of the conversations that I've had in and around government, different kinds of departments and, and other sectors, the question that's getting asked is, how do we sustain all of this community spirit that came up as a result of COVID? How do we harness it? Which I think runs us risk of making a really big error and a really big missed opportunity. And our error is to assume that the value of community engagement is to provide a safety net of support or meet unmet needs in a neighbourhood and a community. Now, certainly that is often true. And our own research shows us that the role of the community being one of helping others is one that's really keenly felt and held and acted on. But it's not always a welcome responsibility. I should say it's not universal. But what this framing and characterisation of community does is it casts a community's role as remedial. So pick up and work with the problems that are being presented. And that certainly feels like that's the way that some of the government um, framing of this is going or thinking about it. But I think it would be pretty amazing if we characterise community as something ultimately regenerative and not remedial. So as the Cumberland Report shows, creative capacity exists in our communities all over the place, in our arts and cultural sector, in the anchor organisations that occupy in our towns and cities, and certainly in the minds of many, many young people in our communities across the country. So when we look at this report, the really interesting question is how do we then design the support, the funding and the investment to catalyze the efforts of people who want to make economic and environmental as well as social change in their communities? How do we design opportunities for genuine cross-sector collaboration where the assets and people in a community take their place as an equal partner for recovery and change? and change. And so that brings me really to a final point, uh, which is about leadership. So if you remember, oh, it seems like a lifetime, it seems like a lifetime ago now, but a good few days, if not a couple of weeks before the government started taking action on COVID-19, there was already this rapid surge of COVID-related community activity, almost all of itself organising, highly energetic, either building on existing groups or often completely new coordinated groups of near strangers and anybody that in times gone by or has recently found themselves as part of one of these groups you'll understand and relate to some of the self-organizing with love chaos that surrounds them in their early days and within all of those groups leaders emerge and they are the ones who have or they find the capacity to coordinate people to bring a bit of order to the chaos, to pick up the phone and ask for something, to see the natural strengths and resources that exist in the local network and influence their direction towards meeting a shared goal. And anyone involved in new or emerging group activity will recognize the enormous relief when these people do step up and start coordinating things. Um, they're positive, resilient and hardy. They also suffer burnout and they can often, almost always feel the increasing burdens of responsibility uh, as they kind of deal with small PP politics, local feuds, tensions across different groups. But they organise and build coalitions for change when others go round in circles. And they really are anchors in a place steering through often a mire of local politics and prejudices who can take the heat out of a debate. Now, they may have done their work differently in a non-digital community culture. In a WhatsApp world, Oftentimes now they are really visible curators of community when things, particularly on our phones, get out of control. And I think we need to celebrate, recognize and support their development and efforts because 
whether our community leaders are mobilising support for opening an empty shop and they need some hard skills to make that happen, or whether they're diffusing conflict between different groups in West Belfast, they need to be asked what help and support they could usefully use, and then we should try and provide it. We're doing that bit of work at the Young Foundation, but so much more is needed. And I guess in final, a final point is that we are searching and searching for a way through a whole maelstrom of crises right now in our economy, in our society, and in our environment. And resilient communities, it's not just something that's required to keep us together, to withstand the blast of today's and tomorrow's crisis and challenges, but because they are unfettered often by the bounds of existing institutions, communities, I think, may also be the route to reinventing ourselves. And so let us provide the support and investment for that opportunity to be given some real oxygen. Thanks. Helen, thank you very much indeed. And I love that um, curators of, of community. I think that's a fantastic uh, term. We're going to, to turn now to, to Ali. Ali, you, uh, you contributed to this report by attending the conference, and it'd be great to get your reflections on what's uh, emerged at the end of the project. Thank you. Uh, I'm Ali, I'm a trustee for Charity Solutions Not Sides. Uh, I'm going to take a, a wander through the report and touch on a few different points, uh, particularly uh, focusing on innovation through cross-sector collaboration, uh, barriers to reimagining Britain, government policy, faith-based and their role in build, nurturing resilience in education. The pandemic has brought the, the greatest instability that society has seen for generations. Uh, and as we traverse through this phase of uncertainty and turbulence, uh, it's, it's ine inevitable that it feels like we're wandering in the dark and we're facing uh, insecurities unlike before. We've seen the best of humanity, particularly with communities and places of worship mobilizing, volunteering, and supporting those who are in greatest need. Likewise, we've also seen those who have further entrenched social division, polarization, and hate. Uh, the Black Lives Matter protests are a reminder of the unaddressed inequality and systematic, system, systemic and structural racism in Britain today. There's a number of factors which add to this complexity. I would add, that in order to truly build resilience, we need a deeper analysis and understanding of social division in Britain today, and a public discourse that is nuanced rather than driven by divisive political ideologies. Periods of uncertainty require innovation, whilst periods, periods of stability can draw on the wisdom of experience. In order to nurture social innovation, we need to be more radical in our approach to foster leadership, uh, who can manage risks rather than being risk averse. And that risk averseness is often uh, deeply rooted within a lot of our public sector uh, and with, particularly with institutions and funders. Uh, and we really need a space now which allows resources for innovation, experimentation, but also to manage failure more safely as well. A driving social innovation and change requires that shared space for cross-sector collaboration that brings academics, policymakers, practitioners, leaders and activists together to nurture a creative tension, to see the world 
through different lenses and different perspectives in order to be able to create new solutions. Uh, the report begins with the need to uh, emphasizing the need on reimagining a new future uh, when civil society and institutions, particularly ethnic minority community organizations and faith institutions are struggling to financially survive and often live a hand-to-mouth existence. And this often becomes a, a significant barrier. Uh, I've heard third sector leaders mention time and time again that they often lack the resource and time to accept every invitation. Uh, and therefore, a significant voice is often missing from the discourse and conversations where decisions often take place, but also the innovation starts to happen as well. Uh, ethnic minority uh, third sector organizations also face tremendous challenges, particularly when it comes to funding. Uh, organizations are having to jump through many more hoops and facing a greater level of scrutiny uh, than other organizations. Uh, a key theme of the report is to address the inequality that communities are facing by public sector funders. And the report highlights that very importantly, that funding alone isn't the solution where we require empowerment collaboration as well. Briefly touching on government policy, the last decade we've seen severe funding cuts to the public sector and to communities. Uh, and often that's forgotten. And often, particularly in the Northwest, we see a disproportionate effect and impact on communities when it comes to funding. And that makes it really challenging more so. Uh, again, uh, what we need to, the deprivation faced up north, we're often hit twice, if not three times as hard. Uh, they, and again, what the report touches on is the integration paper, uh, reframing the relationship and the onus, which is really important. It's great to see on paper. However, what I'd really like to see is that moving away from being paper-based to practice in reality. Section five of the report explores strengthening community resilience through faith-based communities. The notion of the welfare state is based on religious institutions and some academics trace this back to the second Caliph Omar. Uh, faith-based third sector organizations often face lots of challenges, but also meeting the need, the need of communities where public se sector often aren't. Faith institutions, a gateway, and, uh, and, there are an in, and there's also an infrastructure which is lacking in white working class communities, which causes a grievance uh, towards faith communities as well. Uh, the relationship between faith institutions, government, and local councils have become stretched of late, particularly with trust reducing drastically. Uh, meaningful collaboration between local government communities has deteriorated, and we really need an honest conversation about why that has taken place and what we need to do to remedy that. Uh, unfortunately, secularism continues to be a convenient excuse not to do faith by some of these public sector institutions or engaging with communities and faith institutions very selectively. Uh, faith communities need to be engaged beyond the lens of counterterrorism, suspect communities, uh, and a problem that needs to be fixed. We need to reframe that engagement and relationship and look at faith institutions 
as a collaboration and a partner to find solutions with. Uh, and the faith institutions have a great asset and strength that we're often go overlooked. Uh, and that's hugely problematic. Uh, what's been great in the last few years is some local authorities have started investing in creating faith covenants and starting to look at co-producing action plans and giving an opportunity for a faith to be a factor within the decision-making process. Uh, there's still a lot more work that needs to happen in that regards. Uh, and this is something uh, that needs to be considered further, particularly when we're looking at the recommendation of leadership, decision-making and religious literacy. I'm going to briefly touch on my passion and my love of interfaith and interfaith forums have deteriorated over the years. Uh, and often there's many reasons for that, often due to uh, the, it, the, these are mainly run by the goodwill of volunteers. Uh, but if I'm being brutally honest and critical, they're often dominated by the usual suspects. Uh, and they're often, uh, and apologies for using this term, gray-haired middle-aged men, which I'm becoming one of as well. So I'm very conscious of that criticism. Uh, and also, they therefore lack the inclusion of women and young people. Uh, interfaith and the forums themselves need reframing, need a new direction, need a new, new reinvigoration as well. And they're a great way to engage faith institutions and communities. Uh, these interfaith can be a powerful mechanism for bridge building, nurturing religious literacy, and promoting social action and resolving tensions and conflict. Uh, and interfaith creates a platform which addresses how to navigate the concerns around proselytization and the usage of public funds and can often act as, a, as an umbrella group that can support institutions to navigate some of these challenges as well. And there's a need uh, to create a more empowered leadership with interfaith skills and religious literacy. Uh, just to touch upon another report that's coincided with this report launch, which is the British Academy's report on cohesive societies, faith and belief, which delves into faith uh, in, in much more detail. Uh, and finally, just to touch upon section nine on strengthening community resilience and education. Uh, as a trustee of Solutions Not Sides, I just felt it was really important to touch upon the phenomenal work of the team at Solutions Not Sides and our work on fo fo focusing on creating humanizing encounters, creating safe spaces to talk about Israel and Palestine without feeding Islamophobia and anti-Semitism, which is becoming more and more challenging and more and more important as well. It is important to note that Islamophobia and anti-Semitism are rooted in racism and white supremacy through a process of dehumanization. It is by bringing the voices of Palestinians and Israelis into the room that we can begin to understand the conflict, the realities of violence, personal experience, and how we can work towards peace. This creates a powerful and transformational experience for the students to question in a safe space, to foster skills and to foster critical thinking skills, but also to learn from experience and thinking about the layers of solutions required from, for peace. But what we also find is students can then transfer that knowledge and experience and apply it to other issues and solutions as well. I'll stop there. Thank you. Ali, thank you very much indeed. And finally, we're going to hear from uh, Neil. So Neil uh, is the Chief Executive of the Centre for Local uh, Economic Strategies and spoke at our conference 
So, Neil, what are the key learning points you think that we can take away uh, from this, uh, this report? Okay, thanks. Thanks, Ed, and delighted to be part of this, uh, this event here today. Um, I think it was a great event, a fantastic event, and it's interesting that the event itself and the, mm -hmm. reflecting on it, and it was before COVID, but I think in many ways um, we were still all who were at the event were aware of a crisis that were around, the climate crisis, the economic crisis, the social crisis. So whilst there may be the intensity of the crisis that COVID has brought wasn't there, I think we were all aware that things weren't going too well, if you like. Um, um, I'm, I'm Neil and I'm from the Centre for Local Economic Strategies. We're the National Organisation for Local Economies, Progressive Economics for People, Place, Planet, uh, also, it's worth just for this conversation mentioning that I've just been seconded uh, for two days a week to the Scottish government uh, to um, to advise them on community wealth building, and that's two days a week, and that's for a year, and that's interesting in terms of the light of how we build community resilience in Scotland, and obviously playing into that, that there. Um, um, I also, if I could say, just echo what others have said, this is a difficult job that Sinead had. <laughs> and whoever gave her the job and she's taken that commission, she, she, I wouldn't envy her because it was a wide-ranging event. I'm sure his colleagues would agree that were there. And many, many things came up. It was a beautiful conversation, but it had many, many dimensions to it. And to bring this report together in such a clear way, I think it hats off to all involved, including Sinead in that. Um, I think it's really timely. And I think what's so timely about it, of course, is that I see this crisis we're in is not a linear crisis where we're in this crisis and then out of it. I think it's just a horrible public health crisis that sits on top of the other crises that I think that, that event um, explored. And if you think about the moment we're in and the moment we're going to be in, unfortunately, for a long time, I see this like I'm in Scotland at the moment, I was about to go on holiday, and uh, I'm thinking about the, the, the mists and the storms that, f that are in the hills. We've got a storm in the hills, and it comes crashing down at certain points, then it clears again, but it's still there. And I think that's the period when a series of moments of crises that will be really um, horrible, and then we'll kind of come out a little bit, and resilience, and resilience of our people and communities is fundamental to this. And... Um, what's particularly worrying moving forward, I think it's worth saying, these recommendations that we've got here um, are serious. I think a lot of them need to be taken forward ASAP because we're facing massive business failure, massive unemployment, worse than we've ever probably seen in our generation, if, if not for 70, 80 years, and probably levels of social deprivation and destitution we've not seen. Yeah, food banks have been outstripped now. And that's before we've even got to the main period of the economic and social crisis. So these recommendations are serious, you know, and we need to take them forward. Um, COVID, all COVID's done is exposed the cracks that were there anyway. Yeah. And it's exposed the cracks in inequality and the injustice that communities face, particularly. Uh, black, Asian, minority communities face. It's exposed the social divisions that have, that have bedeviled this country for years. It's exposed the fragility of our economy. Well, even some of our food supply chains are being questioned. 
Yeah, um, we I think we'll have ongoing problems of supply chains around that, and it's clearly exposed as Sinead talked about a social contract. Let's be frank, let's be honest. That 1945 social contract that I was born in, yeah, uh, it, it, it's broken. That social contract's broken. We need to put that together again and pretty fast. Yeah. There's positives though, and what great positives. You know, look at that community power that Helen talked about. That It's no surprise to us that worked in the community, that effervescence, that beauty, but what a great thing. And why don't we harness that, as Helen said, harness that, not just to meet, to meet unmet needs, what Helen said, but also to take control more of the economy. We need to use that community power to take more ownership of the economy. And also, well, also another thing that was great about the crisis, we've got a new consciousness. People like us, and I'm sure people listening in, watching in, we know that nurses were important. We know that the refuse collectors were important. We know, knew that key workers were important. We knew there was key industries. We knew that. But maybe a lot of people didn't know that. There's a new consciousness now. We know what matters. I mean, hopefully respect what matters. Now, getting on to resilience. Resilience is a coming together, in my view, and I think touched upon the report, and well, it's actually explicit in the report, between the public, the social, and the commercial sectors. If you like, the state, the market, and society coming together. Now, a resilient society doesn't just focus on the market. It also, no, no, no. The market will screw it all up if it's left in its own devices. It's not just the state. The state will also, with its bureaucracy, screw it up if it's left its own devices. And community, this whole idea of community power will take over. Let's not have any state anymore. It's the community. No, we need all three working synergistically together. And the relationships and bonds between the state, the market, and society is what's important, between the public, the commercial, and the social. And those 24 recommendations, all in the little way, I'd look through when Emily said through uh, uh, the latest report this morning, I'd look through and thinking, that's kind of more social, that one's more commercial, that's social and commercial. They're all, they're, they're all building those relationships. The ones, it's no surprise to people that know the work of Claes and uh, uh, myself, is that I'm interested in the community ownership and the economy. I'm particularly interested in some sections, 10 to 16, and all, all of them, really, all the recommendations, but those sections particularly really interested in them. Mm -hmm. Because what they're talking about there is economic democracy and community ownership in the economy. And I was reflecting on a, a, a Scottish example, really, of what gone wrong with the economy. Many, and it's called the scoosh factor. The scoosh factor. In Scotland, scoosh means that um, things slide away. Yeah? It scooshes away. It scooshes away. Scoosh. What happens in the economy? This is the sixth largest economy in the world. Where does the wealth go? Where does it scoosh a water? It doesn't scoosh to marginalised communities particularly. It doesn't scoosh towards um, poor people. It doesn't scoosh towards many communities. So we've got a problem about where wealth goes and where money goes. And that's how community ownership, community businesses, social enterprises, social economy, community voluntary sector, co-ops, mutuals, community interest companies, all that architecture stops the scoosh. In fact, it means that the scoosh is towards them. So I'm interested in all those recommendations around community wealth building. 
localise and socialise the economy. Helen mentioned that the targets for community sector ownership in the high street, business growth hubs. How do we get business growth hubs? Not just talk about business, but talk about how they grow community and social business. I think all that's fantastic, brilliant stuff um, to broaden and deepen the economy and ownership over the economy. Finally, I would say we need the community. If we're going to build, if we're going to get through these crises and the poorest who suffered the most before don't suffer even greater through these crises, we're going to have to get the community to shine through the state and the market more. We're going to have to take control of elements of the market. And if you think about what happened, and this is what gets me out of bed in the morning, even though it's horrible for prospects, night after the war, there was a recognition that we could build a better Britain, a more resilient Britain. It wasn't used those terms, a better Britain. A, work, a land fit for heroes. Well, let's build now, quickly, mm. a land fit for heroes. Mm. And that will involve a new configuration of the state, market and community. And the community needs to shine through a lot, lot more, even in that old welfare state model. And what those 24 recommendations do, I see them as the ingredients, they're the condiments to a new cake that could be built. And that cake would be a social contract that, that is fit for all of our communities moving forward. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much indeed, Neil. You've actually preempted the question I was about to, to ask, but I'll, I'll ask it because we might just be able to continue. Because I was going to say that um, we've got 24 recommendations, which is a huge amount of recommendations, which highlights what a fruitful uh, piece of work we've been engaged in. And how does it, how do we co make it these recommendations coalesce uh, and prioritize them? So what is the, what's the starting point? So is the starting point a discussion around uh, a new social contract? Is that, what, is that what's required to get this, uh, get the action going? Perhaps I could throw that out to our panelists to get their responses. Anyone like to come back on that? Neil, yeah, yeah, sure. So I'll come in because I was unmuted anyway, and it was, um, but I, I think like all reports, Ed, uh, is that it creates a life of its own after it's published. And it's a piece of paper that people read and play around with and move around. I think the next iteration, if we wanted to formalize it a bit more, would be there's a, there's a nest, there's nesting in baskets that are already produced as part of the report, but maybe a hierarchy there, a hierarchy of what's achievable in the short, medium, and long term. And then perhaps, um, so that's that would be important. And I think the perhaps it needs, we'd need a advocates, and I'm certainly putting my organization up as an advocate for it to start to punt it out to different people in different communities and and into power. I'll be certain letting the Scottish government about it for sure. Um, mm. So I think I think there's a hierarchy there of certain things, short, medium, not hierarchy, a, a chronology of short, medium and long. And then a, a strategy that makes sure that it's landing in the right places. Um, but certainly as the ingredients to build a, a, a new social contract, I think that's kind of central. Thank you. Sinead, I don't want to put you on the spot, but as you, as you authored that, I wondered whether you were thinking about how to how, to, how it all fits together, as it were. 
think, and someone mentioned it in, in the chat there, is to the importance of continuing the conversations. And like Neil said, to get people to be actively pushing these things forward in the networks that they function in. And it's, it's going across um, the public, private and social sector. I don't think it's necessarily one starting point um, because the necessity of pushing some of these things forward. I think we should be taking advantage of any kind of platform or networks that we do function in and everyone trying to push things forward in any way that they can. Um, and of course, working in the areas that they feel most passionate about and they feel the most, they have most experience in. Um, and again, adding more people to this discussion. Um, someone in the chat mentioned that it would be good to be able to feedback more on these things. And I don't think we should see the report as a definitive end to any of these things that now, you know, the line is Sorry, drawn. Sorry, we've just lost you, Sinead. You're, you're coming back. Hang on. Can I you hear me now? Yep, yep. Yeah, I think okay. Um, I don't think we should see the report as a definitive end. Um, it should be seen as something that we continue the conversations with and, and try to move from paper, like Ali said, and bring it into practical action in any way that we can. Um, and again, focusing on that social contract, I think is key, but I don't think I could necessarily rate the recommendations into things that I would want to have done first and things I want to have done second. Sure. Anyone else want to, to come in on this one? Yeah, Ali. Uh, my, <clears throat> my quick analysis would be in, there needs a multi-pronged approach and how to make your life. Particularly thinking about, there's a lot of thinking that's gone behind already, but where does the thinking need to go next? And driving that thinking forward and creating spaces virtually and physically when possible to be able to have those conversations, but also having those cross-sector conversations as well, which often become hard when people are so far afield, but also because we're so busy. Secondly, for me, it's about action. Neil's mentioned about action planning, uh, short, medium and long term, but also having working groups who can emphasize and come together to be able to make the actions real, make it uh, evaluate, make it so that we can be monitored and evaluated and you can measure the impact. So the thinking has to couple the action uh, but also, it, it, there's a wider education process that's required as well. Uh, there's a lot of changes that are required where central government needs to be in the room particularly. And how, uh, who does that central government engagement uh, and does it in a way which causes them to listen, but also causes them to start their own snoring as well. So I, they're, the, they're the main points that where I would start. But yeah, it needs a bit more thought to. Sure, thank you. Uh, Helen, can I just pick up one thing that sort of strikes me from the report? You talked about uh, leadership and you use that wonderful phrase about curators of community. And it strikes me that there's so much richness in this report that if we can get it into the hands of these people, these people that are many of whom have sort of emerged out of the, out of the pandemic and come to the fore, um, do you think that's a, a, a sensible strategy and how might we go about it? <laughs> well, I might take, might take a slightly different view, actually. I think that's, you know, broadening engagement in the ideas. Yes, I think um, it speaks to a point about really about 
who this report is for and what you want them to do, right? So, so just to back to that previous conversation is that there's clearly some things in there for central government, right? That will be of possibly very limited interest to someone running a community group in Bradford. Um, and there'll be other things that are relevant to them that they really kind of get excited about. So it is about kind of like, I guess, nesting or clustering things together. But I think the thing that people, what makes change happen really very radical change is that no one chooses to make radical bold courageous decisions unless they either really believe it or they're kind of somehow kind of somehow find that they can't get away with not doing it and so one of the things that makes that thing much easier is if you have absolutely brilliant examples of why it's better. This is better. This company is better because it's owned by in its communities and it's on many different dimensions, it's doing better. This town is doing better because it has renegotiated a new relationship with the local businesses and the local authority and the community. And so it's better. And so as soon as you start telling the story of what the benefits are rather than the features in classic kind of product terms, you're interested in a much, you're into a much better space. I think the thing that I find most energizing really, um, not to the exclusion of everything else, but the energy and passion of young people, I think is probably absolutely the root of some of this, who with the best will in the world, sort of, they don't have the sort of, the aged constraints and fetters that are, and, and limitations that we've got. And so I was like, no, of course we can do that. So, you know, if you imagined, you could advocate to say, right, unlimited, obviously the endowment supports, um, Young, well, not necessarily all young people, but sort of um, individuals. And then you have the local trust, which is about giving communities a million quid to go off and do what they want to do and, and start not to be the sole players, but to build their power to be more effective collaborators with the state and with the, with the market. Why don't you bring those two things together? So you have pots of basic incomes for young people and a pot of money to kind of create community enterprise in places. Do you know what I mean? There's, there are really tangible things that you can do. And I think the big, there was something on Twitter today about another national conversation starting about it. And yes, conversation and yes, engagement, but really it's at the local level where you go, you need sustained collaborative multi-sector conversation, the space for that conversation to own and affect their own change. It isn't about a national thing in some ways. It's just about how do we own and take some control over our environment um, and recognise all of our different strengths and capabilities and differences in a really nice way. So um, that would be my long-winded answer to that. Sorry, Ed. Thank you. And it's actually tees up the question that I'd like to ask you now from, from uh, someone who's, who's uh, uh, Zooming with us, uh, Kay Scorer. And Kay has been involved in the, uh, earlier on in the, in the project. And she said, she said, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on how we can support young people to engage in nuanced discourse, even though they live in a world dominated by binary us and them conversations. So it's, uh, it's picking up that, that theme of, of youth. Um, and anyone like to have a, have a go at that question? Neil, over to you. I don't know if I'm that approach, I'm probably the oldest panelist. <laughs> 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 um, but but I, I would say is that, and one of the positives, I think, is that um, the new contract, social contract we build, uh, will need to um, get away from binary or even 
the whole intersectionality of things, the whole complexity of things. And I think younger people have a natural understanding of, of those sorts of intersectionality and the, the, the com how the complexity fits. For me, as an old guy, complexity of all that kind of, I've got to work hard to get it, to get it in my brain and to work, I think, from naturally, from naturally to my young teenage children, certainly, and, and many others. And I think the new social contract needs to have that wisdom of that youth right at the heart of it. And I think it was a criticism of the event, you know, in terms of engaging young people. I think there needs to be new ways in which we engage young people and, and, and treat them seriously in terms of having a contribution to uh, how we move forward. I'm involved in this brilliant thing by Children's England, which is the Child, 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 state, uh, child welfare. So it's the child, the child state fair. And it's how you would create a welfare state for children. And it's written by young people. And some of the imaginative and creative ideas they come up with is amazing because they get this complexity of the modern world and the intersectionality of all the elements in it. So how we do that, I don't know, but it needs a complete overhaul, if you like, of a public policy process, I think, and new opportunities for young people to come into those conversations. Anyone else want to come in on this? Yeah, Sinead. Um, just to echo what Neil was saying, I, I actually think that it's easier for young people to not think in those binary divides. Um, I think there's been a lot of positive examples of really strong programs of, you know, leadership training of um, initiatives that really give young people a platform. But what came out in the conference is that often those initiatives and programs have a limit and the products that these young people are coming up with is not listened to by everyone. Um, the, leadership that they're that young people are doing within the community it seems that in some cases there's a stopping point of what they're allowed to engage with what they're allowed to have you know legitimate say in in their localities so i think there's bigger questions about how can how society views young people and how society views the experience and expertise of young people and how to raise that legitimacy so that it's not just as Helen mentioned, a tick box exercise of saying, oh, we spoke to young people, but also saying, you know, we involved young people. And it's, it's, it's not just involving, it's this is driven by young people, initiated by young people. And these young people were given um, the feeling that the effort that they were gonna be putting in was worth it because it was listened to, it was respected. And um, so giving that platform and um, giving them that support when they bring initiatives forward. Anyone else want to, to you know, Ali, yeah. Oh, Ali, you need to, to unmute yourself. If, we're if you're playing Zoom bingo, you can take that <laughs> one off, unmute. Uh, community empowerment, youth empowerment often gives the perception that we as the experts and professionals will empower uh, communities. Uh, and I think that's a misnomer. Uh, I think what we need to be doing really is walking alongside our communities, but also walking alongside our young people particularly, to see the world through their eyes, uh, and then have an opportunity to explore. Uh, yes, many people see the world in a very black and white way, uh, 
but the challenge is is to create opportunities for that black and white thinking to be challenged in a way that's meaningful and not threatening and that takes time that takes wisdom that takes courage as well being taken out of your comfort zone can really challenge you uh, can really qu cause you to question everything that you believe and that you've done for many years and that for some can be very overwhelming so it, it also requires compassion uh, so walking alongside people is I think more empowering than it is for us to fly into communities or into uh, sectors to try and fix the problems and for me that's really important that we start to think about these issues in that way uh, I think particularly having worked at a local authority level, but also being a community activist, uh, I often feel quite jaded as a community member or feel, oh, right, this is the new initiative that you're bringing that's going to solve my community and the problems that we're facing, rather than creating a platform to work together in a meaningful way to collaborate, to create solutions together, to have that deeper understanding, to, to go down that rabbit hole and to explore all the different avenues. And sometimes that may take you to places as professionals, we may feel very uncomfortable or very unprepared, but also sometimes it means communities and young people will be also equally going down places where they'll feel uncomfortable as well. And I believe that's where the change really begins to happen that's where growth really begins to happen is when you feel that discomfort and you realize actually, yes, this is where things need to grow and develop. And I think when, when it comes to co-creation, co-creation is often used as a, a really great buzzword that we're going to co-create, but how meaningful is that co-creation and how meaningful is that involvement of the communities in that co-creation and how, how much are we addressing and acknowledging the power differentials and the imbalances that exist as well for that co-creation to be meaningful? I'll stop there. Thank you very much indeed. Well, that's uh, plenty to think about. Can I, can I also go back to something you, you talked about earlier on, which is about the whole uh, faith dimension to this. And one of the things that sort of struck me reading the report was that it, it sort of took me back uh, thinking, in many ways, there seemed to be, it's been retrograde. Um, I can think of growing up uh, in an environment where the local community, where there's a lot of synergy between, say, uh, the church and youth groups uh, and sports clubs and so on and so forth, which we seem to have, have lost. And, um, but we are in a very different uh, society to the one that I grew up in, which was quite monochromely Christian. We've got this much more religious diversity around. How do we, from your practical viewpoint about interfaith relations, really start to get faith groups to, to communicate and connect with these uh, wider, wider initiatives? So I'll resist an urge of touching on youth groups and the systematic destruction of the youth service and how that's detrimental mentally affecting society today because uh yeah i'll go off on one for half an hour which we don't want uh but to look at faith literacy i think is really important uh, and what does faith literacy mean in a increasingly secular world or as uh, the census identifies the number of 
nuns is increasing. So those who may not ascribe to a particular faith or may not put themselves into an atheist or even a humanist or an agnostic box, but faith literacy equally remains important for them, not as an adherent, but somebody to understand the complexity and the diversity of the world. So for me, faith, uh, faith and religious literacy is really important. And how do we create this safe and compassionate spaces that we can engage and talk about issues? For me, it becomes really important. Interfaith, the term in itself is problematic because for some it connotes a theosophical perennialist ideology where particularly those who are on the conservative end of the spectrum may not want to engage in that kind of interfaith. Mm -hmm. For me, interfaith should be around taking faith and its adherence where they are at and how they practice their faith and allowing people to engage and to talk. That is a long, hard journey, but also needs to go beyond faith leaders as well. I think faith leaders are an important part of the conversation, but it's how you go beyond that leader and actually engage with communities, but also engage with communities in a way that doesn't simply fetishize faith as well in the current age, or doesn't simply racialize faith institutions. And I think that's another issue that we need to take into consideration, particularly when we look at policy making and community engagement. We often look at communities simply through that lens of race, very rarely through faith, because faith is much harder to deal with. But also the complexities uh, of faith. Christianity, for example, isn't a simply a homogenous faith. Neither is Islam or Buddhism or Sikhism or Hinduism. Actually, there are lots of different denominations, sects and groups who operate within that category. And how do you understand that? And that takes exposure, that takes encounter. It's also not an exercise in lived experiences. Uh, particularly what makes it challenging is where Britain has certain uh, concentrations compared to other parts and how you actually bring in the wider society or wider groups where there's a lack of diversity to start understanding diversity in a way that's relevant. Uh, and for me, and I think somebody's posted a, a, a great link to the feasts uh, 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 guidance on dialogue that for me is really important how do you create a space that allows you to respectfully agree but more importantly respectfully disagree and how you create that space is important particularly one that goes beyond dialogue and also emphasizes on social action but also has that exchange of ideas and thoughts thank you anyone else want to come in on that one in which case, I will um, come to another question. If you excuse me, to, to actually read this question, I've got to get into a strange angle uh, across my screen. So um, it says earlier, Ali discussed Israel and Palestine. Should a new citizen contract have a frame to be able to critically examine relationship at all level, local, national and international? If such an approach is positive, then such a critical frame should not single out specific international events, but approach them all? It's rather a long question, but do you think you picked that up, Ali, to respond to? Or should I read it again? 
I've got it in front of me, so I'm reading and trying to understand okay. uh, and to analyze the question. Um, okay, so there's two hats that I'll, or there's two different approaches I'll take to this question. One is as a trustee of solutions, not sites. Uh, so our organization solely focuses on the conflict between Israel and Palestine, Israelis and Palestinians, and which is why we prime, we focus on bringing Israeli and Palestinian peace activists to the UK to talk about their experiences. Uh, and because that's uh, our primary focus, that's what we do. Uh, but what we do and recognize is that there's a larger impact on the conversations that we're having. Uh, but also we're very conscious that if we were to start talking about the conflict in Yemen or Saudi Arabia and the arms trade, it would end up becoming mission drift, but also become uh, unrealistic in how and where we operate. So that's for me very, on a very clear level from as a trustee of an, a, a small charitable organization, having a broader social conversation and with me as an activist, I would say, yes, let's have that conversation, but how are we going to create spaces to have that conversation which are not going to become a stick to beat the communities with. And that often becomes the challenge. And how and what are the voices required that we need to bring into uh, the room to have those conversations. Uh, to use a local, or local example, Brexit, we could use the solution that not sides approach in bringing somebody who's pro-Brexit, a Remainer and a Brexiteer together in a room to talk about their particular perspectives of why they voted in the particular way they did in a way to create a greater empathy and in a way to create solutions for the future in a post-Brexit Britain, which doesn't reinforce negative stereotypes and prejudices. That in itself would be a project that would require a huge amount of resource to be able to deliver. Uh, and people will design and deliver projects based on their own interests or where they see a need. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of what might come back to that uh, discussion. Particularly for young people, I think it's important for these conversations to be mainstream within education. The challenge often is many teachers feel that they're not equipped with the skills, the knowledge, the expertise to have some of these conversations in a deeper, more nuanced way. But secondly, many teachers feel overwhelmed on what's being thrown at them under the guise of the national curriculum already, and therefore feel very much suffocated how much isn't to emphasize on the GCSC A to C results that they must deliver and the pressure is mounting for teachers to deliver. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of how I would approach the, the, that question. Uh, I'm sure the other panelists have got much more or different insights to me. Any, anyone else want to come in on that one? Yeah, Sinead. Oh, Helen, did you want to say something? Um, just adding to what uh, Ali was saying, I think it's also, you know, considering that this launch is really focused on communities, um, to remember that some of these tensions are not just 
you know, national versus international. Um, some of these tensions that may have originated internationally are having direct impact nationally. Um, so again, just, just, and I'm not saying that Lindsay um, is, is putting it as a binary, but um, just to make sure that the discussions about that are also recognizing that, um, you know, involving communities and in, in hearing what conversations and what discourses need to happen um, at the community level is really important. And I think education is a really powerful tool in order to have those discussions. But at the same time, I don't think education and teachers are the only ones that need to be responsible for that. Um, and it, it needs to be very much thought about strategically and ensuring that different voices are represented in conversations. Um, and I, I would be wary to have one set framework that would be applied across all of the UK to deal with all kind of tension and international conflict, um, which I, I know Ali's not saying, but um, you know, just to ensure that we're not just looking national and international as two separate things. I think, um, yeah, Neil. It's not really my expertise really this area, but I, but I would say that um, to build a, a good society, a society we all wish, we need to have the right architecture in place and the right spaces. And I think we, we've lost a lot of our architecture allows this, let's call it liberal democracy architecture, where we can be in an honest space and have honest conversations. And there's rules in that space of how we conduct ourselves and how we act. And I think we've become very binary and not enough of those liberal democratic spaces where we can just share, respect and share yeah, but 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 also agree, uh, disagree vehemently. Yeah, but we can walk out of that room saying like that's what we do in this good society. We disagree vehemently. Yeah, but it, but we can inhabit the same democracy. And I don't. I think democracy has been weakened, and we don't have those opportunities. Though projects like Ali and many others are great examples of it, but they need to be amplified and scaled up. Citywide, nationwide, it seems. One observation I would add to it is that, from practical experience of doing interfaith work um, in East Oxford some time ago, I was caught up in a situation where it was I couldn't understand the dynamics of what was going on in the local community there. But actually, when one uh, discovered uh, what was going on in parts of Southeast Asia, were actually relating to what was happening in East Oxford, then it sort of unlocked it. And, uh, and then you started to understand where people were coming from, why it was causing tensions locally in, in Oxford. But I think trying to hold all these things together, very complicated, but really, really important. Now, I'm going to move on to another uh, question here from Phil Northall from Nottingham University. Again, I apologise, I have to peer around my screen to be able to actually uh, see the um, question. In fact, I've lost it now. Here it comes. Um, so Phil says, I wholeheartedly agree that resilience requires coming together of market, state and community. He says, work we are doing on building resilience to modern slavery benefits greatly from open partnerships where data and intelligence is shared. Often we often struggle to get businesses to engage, uh, particularly, sorry, this is where I have to really have to scroll around. Uh, where data, where intelligence is square. However, we often struggle to get businesses to engage and particularly to share the valuable data that they have. So another question is, how can we encourage business to be more involved in any partnership work 
and open with data when it could be considered to be a loss of competitive advantage for them. There we are. Neil, do you want to come in on that one? Yes, thank you, Ed. I, I did try to put an answer a little bit in the in the typing answer. But it's a great question, Phil, and, and goes to the nub, I think, of this new, um, new social contract you like. I, I think there's something about how the market is supreme and is too dominant in this relationship between state markets and community. And that means that we need to start and support the market to do, support and incentivize the market to do the right thing. And I think business citizenship is a key kind of concept in my mind here because businesses are citizens too. And that means they've got responsibilities as well as things that they, they receive, if you like. So an idea of a business citizenship. And so how do you, how do you cajole and nudge businesses into doing the right thing, if you like? Well, it seems to me that the state, when it emits a contract to out for a business to deliver, it seems to me that that should be a beacon of what a business citizenship should be. So that contract should come with a license. It should be, you can, should share data, you should have fair tax, you should have good employment, you should have all those things we'd want from a decent business. And that would be stipulated in the contract. And in fact, the recommendation 15 in the report can touch upon that a little bit. We need to encourage progressive behaviours in business as part of this new social contract. And I think one of the levers we have is the very deals, the contracts that we have, that the state has, with businesses. It's a tricky one, but I think we've sunk quite far. And our businesses are like, don't touch businesses, we've got to get them to make growth. I think we need to start touching business. I think COVID's told us that. And we need to get business and the market to work more for us and, how to, and find ways that we cajole and nudge them in the right way. Can I just add something on to that, Ed? Please do. Um, I think Phil's mention of, of data and the challenge of accessing accurate data is, is an issue beyond businesses as well. You know, what's coming out of the press today about, you know, child poverty data and, uh, you know, how can we really get accurate data, real-time accurate data, so that we can strategize effectively and get a realistic picture about what things are looking like, what areas require the most need, etc. And that is something that, a big challenge that I think we need to address beyond just within businesses and the local economy. You know, it's also social data. Um, for the report, I put in several um, freedom of information requests for specific data relating to different aspects of it. For example, um, NEAT data, the um, not employed or in education or training. Uh, specifically data related to ethnicity, I found was very, very difficult to get. And it was something that wasn't analyzed. And um, if it was something that I wanted to get, I would have had to pay X amount of pounds in order to get it. Um, so I think accessing data and the making sure that the data that be, is being presented by reports is accurate, especially things coming out of the government, which you should trust to be accurate, um, is a challenge. Especially for researchers like you, must be. <laughs> Anyone else want to pick up on, on, uh, on data, business, how to engage these different? Yeah. Yeah, Helen, please. So definitely. So there's a couple of points to make really is one is that um, 
ways to get people to share data is to show them why they should do it and what benefit it will have. It comes back to the other point. It's like we don't, oh, it's like when I, in the past, sort of talking to ministers, whoever, and saying, well, you know, you need to have an open data policy. It's like that was the quickest route to them just to walk away. It's like, what, what does open data and opening up that data do that has the benefit for those people as much as anyone else? There are some great examples. I mean, we've been doing, trying to get together lots of unusual and different forms of data sets to try and create more what would might be called collective intelligence about different things, notably community activity. But there are some great examples. So if you look at um, the Buffalo Equity Roundtable model, which I think is fantastic, which was explicitly framed around you get business, you get the government, you get the community groups, you have as broad a representation together as possible, and you pool all the data that you have about a particular place, and you understand and collectively go through a process of trying to make sense of what that data is telling you. Now, in those sorts of environments, particularly when communities feel and have a kind of um, legitimacy around the table that they don't often have and where the public sector probably has a little bit more muscle, it, it becomes increasingly obvious when a market or when an industry is withholding data and it becomes increasingly difficult to do it because you have bonds and relationships with different sectors. If you don't have bonds and relationships with different sectors, you don't have the kind of moral or the relational intent to do it, no matter really what the regulation says. Now in Buffalo, that kind of coming together, looking at the data, what at what point in the system could we intervene to create a more equitable and inclusive economy in Buffalo? They collectively decided that they needed to focus on racial inequality and they needed to focus on particularly uh, racial inequities between young black boys in Buffalo. And then each of those organizations gets their power, which is very different, whether that's from a community, public or market sector, and makes some degree of commitment. So we're not all gonna work on the same thing, but we've got some shared vision about what we wanna achieve. And therefore we will pull on our different resources to help that happen. And there are, and Mark, uh, Neil will know this as well, I'm sure Ali does as well, you know, there are great examples of cross-sector collaborations. There aren't enough, um, but certainly it's one through, I think, hearts and minds more than it is one through regulation or kind of mandation of particular things. That is the swiftest way to encourage a kind of check-in, tick box, what can we do that makes it look like we're supposed to be doing that thing that we're doing. You know, it's, um, it's got to be about relational development between the sectors. Thank you very much indeed. We, we've seemed to run out of, of questions, so it's probably time now to, to start uh, winding up. And I just wonder um, whether we could just ask the, the panelists if there's a particular take home message that they'd like to, uh, to, to, to give those taking part in this, uh, in this webinar. Um, so give you a moment uh, to think about that, but uh, just to take one take home message out of, out of this report. And also just to, to, to say to everyone uh, that the report is now uh, available on the, the Cumberland Lodge website. If you go to our read, watch, listen section, you'll find the report there. And indeed you'll find uh, other reports. And one of the things about the work we've been doing at the Lodge is that we're trying to make sure that uh, our different um, strands of work have synergy between them. So you may find that if you dip into this report, you may want to look at uh, other reports as well. We've got uh, some looking at some of the issues around difficult history, which have come out of the, and relate very strongly to Black Lives Matter. We've got one on racism in Britain as well, 
uh, and we've got another one coming out soon on on digital inclusion. So they're quite holistic and, and linked together. So do please explore them. And I hope that little interlude has given our panelists a moment to think about a take home message. So would anyone like to to kick off with a take home message? Sinead, thank you. I can start because so then um, someone I'm not worried about someone taking mine. Um, I'll, I'll focus on the advocacy um, side of things. Throughout writing this whole report, the amount of people and inspiring initiatives that I learned about, um, you know, it's never ending. You can be looking at these things every day for years and there's still going to be initiatives and projects that you don't know or you aren't aware of. Um, and as Ali mentioned, a lot of the most impactful kind of community-based programs are living hand to mouth. So, you know, a lot of us have different hats, whether we are teachers as, as, as some people in the chat, whether we are working in the charity sector, whether we are influencing policy, um, researchers, etc. But we are also all members of a community. So I think from that perspective, I would really just encourage everyone to take the time to learn about what community projects and what community initiatives are happening within your local area and how can you support them? How can you participate in them? Um, how can you lend your expertise in order to um, you know, give, amplify what they're saying. And again, that doesn't necessarily have to be just financial. Uh, there's a lot of other things that uh, community initiatives are looking for that people can, can give, whether it be time or skills, et cetera. Thank you very much. Neil, how about you? Anything you want to? Yeah, um, I, I, I'd echo what Sinead said. I, I think there's something about this moment that's very fertile. Uh, and I think that's um, there's, there's something to make here. There's an opportunity. I, I see a lot of the stuff we're talking about is horizontal power, and 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 that kind of horizontal power gets gradually higher and higher and higher, and eventually becomes affects vertical power. And I think we should celebrate and encourage that horizontal power. And that which Sinead's saying, get involved, do more and more. And that will eventually affect the vertical power. And I think the most problems we have is with the vertical power. It's the hierarchies, it's the problem. And, and I'm thinking about a quote that I always mention this quote, but I think it's a really good one. It's from Margaret Mead, the ethnographer. And she said, never underestimate the power of a few committed individuals to change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. And, and I think that's uh, that, 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 that will take sustenance from that. And so I think anyone out there will watch this and myself, you know, don't worry how small it is. Get on and do it, you know. Thank you. Ali. For me, it always comes back to the need to build bridges, uh, to build bridges between sectors, to build bridges between people. Uh, and for me, the need, uh, to talk more. Uh, I think sometimes we have uh, limited the impact of talk and uh, we, f we think it doesn't do enough, but I think a, a good conversation can be transformatory uh, for society. So let's talk, start talking more. Let's break, uh, let's break down those barriers to conversation. Let's create more spaces for conversation, but let's start also thinking about doing more as well. Thank you. There we are, get a thumbs up there from uh, Helen, how about you? Um, I agree with everyone, everyone said. Um, I guess my one reflection is, 
just what a consequential loss there is from digital communications, actually. Um, and it promised great democratization, inclusion. It promised the world, as, as most um, communications technologies in our history have, and they don't deliver it. And if I was to be slightly mystical, I would say that, you know, it is not a great surprise that in creating a digital world based on binary code, we have manifested a more binary culture. And so I guess my one reflection is then thinking about the conversations and spaces that we create are messy and complex and interactive and social, and therefore they're probably best done in a room where you can reach out and hold someone's hand if you need to. And so I guess I would be thinking about, is there room? Is there really room for that right now when we have ported our worlds online? Helen, it sounds like you're doing a great plug for Cumberland Lodge, the charity oh, right. that specialises in bringing <laughs> people together physically. Uh, we, we share that vision. We think actually it's great to have Zoom and it's, it's, it's plugging a gap, but there's nothing like getting people together in person uh, and all that happens and creative interactions that take place in that. So, so uh, that's music to my ears here and, uh, and others. We need to, to draw this to a close. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. If you'd like to carry on discussing the report with uh, most of our panelists, uh, sadly, Helen has to, to leave us, but others, I think, will be around. You can do that uh, and also do some networking online via a Zoom call. So the link to join the call is in the Zoom chat, and you're all very welcome to attend. If you're watching via Facebook, um, or our website and would like to join, please direct message us and then we will send you the, the Zoom link. As I said earlier, the report's now available to download on the read, watch, listen page of our website. Do please share it widely and we hope that its recommendations will lead to positive change. Finally, to say, like all charities, Cumberland Lodge is facing difficult times during the pandemic. If you've enjoyed today's event and would like to support our work, we'd be very grateful if you consider making a small donation, which you can do online via our Just Giving page. And we'll put the link up at the uh, end of this webinar. Do please stay in touch. And if you'd like to find out more about our work, please visit uh, cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. Thank you for all taking part. And thanks especially to our panelists, to Sinead, Helen, Ali, and Neil. Thank you very much and goodbye. <laughs>